All right, so we are now in week two of our new series, When Worlds Collide. Uh, this is a series that we're doing on the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, Revelation, as we discussed last week, is a monumental book. And out of all the books of the Bible, it's probably, arguably, uh, the most debated out of all of them. And so instead of tackling the whole book right now, which I'd love to do eventually, we're going to attack really just the first couple chapters. Because right there at the beginning, uh, we have Jesus appearing to John in this vision, this revelation. It's a single revelation. It's not revelations. It's revelation. One complete revelation. And in this... Uh, sends messages to the seven different churches. Last week we discussed the church in Ephesus. This week we, ch- uh, we look at the work of the letter to the church in Smyrna. But before we go any further, how about let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Wonderful God, we thank you for who you are, that you love us so deeply. We thank you for this place we have to gather in your name. And we pray that our hearts would be in the right place as we seek approach your throne and worship. Lord, it's not about us. It's all about you. May we decrease so that you may increase. Open our hearts and our minds to hear your word to us today. And Lord, I pray that as my words stray from yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten. So may your word, your truth, and your promise remain upon our hearts forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the saints said, Amen. So we start with a question. We're talking about a church that is suffering. I have a question for you. Have you ever suffered? Anybody here ever suffered? Show of hands. Have you ever suffered? Everybody should be raising their hand, right? Are you in a season of suffering right now? I won't make you raise your hand right now. But are you in a season of suffering right now? It can look a lot of different ways. I once heard it stated that we are all in Three, one of three seasons in our lives. One is that we are in the midst of suffering. Two is we're on the way out from our, of suffering. Or three, we're on our way into suffering. You ever feel that way? It feels like that, I mean, suffering is an inevitability of life. We're going to have seasons of suffering, aren't we? Is it possible to go through life without any suffering whatsoever? If you found it, nobody else has found that. And you could bottle that and sell it and make millions. We will suffer. And what are some of the questions we tend to ask when we're in seasons of suffering? What are some of the questions we tend to ask? Anybody? Why? That's a big one. Why? Why me? Why this? Why now? What else? When will it end? Please, Lord, when will it end? Anybody else? What do I do? Is it what do I do or is what did I do? What did? Both. It causes a lot of questions to come up, doesn't it? You hit a season of suffering and suddenly the questions just start rolling. And what's hardest are questions that don't tend to have answers. Is there a way out of my suffering? Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Is there a limit to my suffering? Is there a purpose to my suffering? When will it end? 
And then a big one is, where is God in the midst of my suffering? Have you ever found yourself asking that? God, where are you? I believe in you, but where are you in the midst of my suffering right now? Because I don't see you. Where are you, God? These are all big, deep, lamenting questions that we ask. Makes you think of David in the Psalms when he's just pouring his heart out. You, you hear the heartache. You hear the struggle. Suffering is going to happen, and we are going to be challenged by it. It's a fact of life. As we continue our journey with this celestial mail courier from Ephesus now to Smyrna, the, the dynamic is changing a little bit. Because what was the issue in Ephesus? Does anybody remember? They lost their love. Their first love. And then now we move to Smyrna, and they're the suffering church. And so Jesus' message changes a little bit. The letter is similar in fashion to others, because each letter kind of follows a similar format. Each of the letters usually starts out, first you have, uh, it's starting out proclaiming Jesus' identity. Jesus picks from that, that chapter 1 we read last week where we saw this crazy image of Jesus. And you remember the, the Lego translation version? We saw the picture of Jesus with a sword out of his mouth. He's holding stars, flaming eyes. I mean, just some crazy stuff, really tan feet because he had bronzer on, apparently. <laughs> but that image we discussed displays something about Jesus. And Jesus picks out images from that big image to display for each of the churches. Because each one has a purpose and something to say to that particular church at that particular time in their particular situation. And so we have that from chapter 1. So Jesus starts there, and then we typically move to the, the church identity. Jesus tells the church, I know this about you. And a lot of times this is where he praises the church. You are great at this. You, know, you, you serve the poor and you do all of this. I mean, he had a lot of praises for the church in Ephesus, did he not? But then, typically we move on to the difference, or shall we say the disconnect. This is Jesus says, but, the big but comes in. You have lost your first love, is what he told Ephesus. And so it's the judgment piece of where, where they are differing from God's purpose for them. They are disconnecting from God's purpose for them. And then we move on to the remedy. Jesus even shares with them, this is how you move forward. Does anybody remember what uh, he asked Ephesus to do? Remember, repent, and redo what you did before. And so you have that remedy, but then it doesn't just left with the remedy. Jesus proclaims the promise. What's going to happen if you can hold out, if you can do this, if you can seek the remedy, there's a promise at the end of it. If you but overcome and so we begin with our introduction to Smyrna. Smyrna, remember, is a church of suffering. We'll talk a little bit about how they were suffering in a moment. But Jesus introduces himself in this way. He says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right, the words, the first and the last, who died and came to life. Okay. The first and the last who died and came to life. Why do you think Jesus introduces himself this way to Smyrna? Why did he lead with the, 
sword out of his mouth with flaming eyes to smirk. But instead, he says, no, I'm the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Any idea why that would be the image he would choose to introduce himself? Mm -hmm. That's right. If you're, if you're suffering, Jesus is coming in and saying, you know, here, first I need you to hear this. This is who I am. And it's a beautiful image, the first and the last, because he's, he's borrowing this language from somewhere else, isn't he? Anybody want to guess? Where do you hear this kind of language in the Old Testament? Isaiah? The Alpha and the Omega, beginning the first and the last. We say Alpha and Omega because in, in that alphabet, Alpha is the beginning, Omega is the end. That would be like saying the A to the Z. I'm the A to the Z. I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's right. He's, he's pointing out his own suffering and how he overcame it. And he overcame a suffering that none of us could. Right? I mean, this guy is the Lord over death. As Scripture says, he has the keys to death and Hades because he is overcome. And so it is. It's an image of comfort. Well, what I think Jesus is really kind of framing here is he's, he's forming this bookend of what's going on. Because, you know, what happens to us when we're in the midst of suffering is we don't tend to think outside of our suffering, do we? Our mind gets ingrained in what we are doing, where we are. We can't think beyond it. So often, we can't even see the people in need around us. You are suffering. You have a hard time seeing your family and what they might need. Maybe they're suffering too, but then you miss it. Because suffering pulls us into ourselves. It doesn't allow us to see the entirety of things. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to bracket to all of us. I mean, essentially, what he is saying is Jesus is saying, I am the totality of all history. All history. History that has been, that is, and will be. I'm the one who surrounds it all. Everywhere in the middle is me. Before it ever began is me. Before you even understand what's going to happen, it's me. I am bracketing this. Your suffering is a moment now. I recognize your suffering, but I am the first. I am the last. Not your suffering. Not the Roman Empire and its emperors. Not the U.S. government, not your employer, not your family. Jesus is the first and the last. Nobody else can take that position. He is the totality of history. That's what he's saying. I said, it's all about perspective. Didn't we learn about that last week? Revelation is all about perspective. And we learn a little bit, too, that things might not be as they seem. <coughs> So as we go into verse 9, we find that Jesus looks to the church and says, Look, I, I, I see your tribulation, and I know your poverty, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know your tribulation. Jesus says, I, I know what you're going through. And now when Jesus says this, it's not like a friend of yours who says, Oh, I, I know your pain. And you're going, really? Do you, do you know my pain? Do you really? Do you understand every little nuance that's going on here? Yes, you may have been through something similar, and I acknowledge that, but do you know my pain? 
Jesus does. Jesus knows their tribulation. And I want to point out that this word used here in the Greek for tribulation is the word flipsis. Why don't you say that with me? I want you to have as much fun saying it as I do. Flipsis. It's T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. Flipsis. Flipsis. Ready? Flipsis. Flipsis. We're all going to sound like we have you know, slurred speech here. You're like, oh, the Holy Spirit came. They're drunk. And it's not even blood clock. Flipsis. This word flipsis means pressure. Not just ordinary pressure. It means crushing pressure. You know, the kind of pressure that turns cold and ice. Crushing pressure. I know your tribulation. I know your crushing pressure. I know your flipsis. Jesus knows what's going on. He knows the danger that they are in. So what should Jesus say in all this? They are in such crushing pressure. What do we want Jesus to say? If we're honest, what do we want Jesus to say to their, their flipsis, to their pressure, to their tribulation? Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus said, and now I'm going to lift it? Isn't that what we want all the time? Jesus just stepped in and go, where are you, God? And go, I'm right here. Let me take that. But does it always happen? Because notice what happens here. Jesus doesn't lift their pressure. And says, instead, he says, do not fear for what you are about to suffer. Okay, okay, did I hear you right, Jesus? What I'm about to suffer? What about my suffering right now? You're telling me there's going to be even more? So do not fear in what I'm about to suffer when I'm already suffering. Is that the answer we want from Jesus? You think the church in Smyrna would have liked a better answer than that? But yet, this is what Jesus tells them. Why, Jesus, don't you offer to lift the pressure? release the pressure. I think it's interesting at this point to point out that this letter to Smyrna is a little different from the remainder of all the other letters. Uh, actually, Smyrna and the letter then to Philadelphia, that's not the city of brotherly love here in the U.S., that's a different Philadelphia, the original Philadelphia. <coughs> um, these two churches, these two letters, are the only ones out of the seven that don't get a corrective response to saying you're doing something wrong. Because in Smyrna, the interesting thing to note, and I'll show you how this is relating to this, they are doing everything right. And why I think it's important to point that out is if they're doing everything right, then is, is the suffering their fault? For making some sort of, because I mean, some of our suffering we bring on ourselves, don't we? I'm suffering today because I chose to get on a bike yesterday and ride six miles with a cart with my two boys attached, going up and down hills. My legs are burning right now. I'm suffering, yeah, maybe not close to suffering, but I'm suffering and I made a choice. Sometimes it's stupid choices we make. Don't we make stupid choices sometimes? I know I'm not the only one. And we suffer because we made a stupid choice. And you think we learn. But in the case of Smyrna, that's not the case. They didn't make a stupid choice. They weren't wrong. They weren't doing anything wrong. They are suffering even though they're doing everything 
right. Sometimes we are under pressure for being careless, wrong, or even making ungodly choices. But sometimes we can be under pressure for making wise, right, and godly choices too, can't we? You can make the right choice and suffer for it. Can you not? Standing up for what is right doesn't always mean that everybody's going to go, it's great, good job. If you're the whistleblower, are the people you blew the whistle all going to like you? Probably not. Doing the godly right thing can lead you to suffering. In fact, to the point that Thomas Torrance of Edinburgh, Scotland says this, he says, the church cannot be a true church without causing trouble. A church cannot be a true church without causing trouble. Now, that doesn't mean careless trouble. I mean, there's plenty of churches, I'm sure, out there that love to cause careless trouble. But saying that if you're doing all the right things, it's going to be reference with others. It's going to be upsetting some people that don't understand what we are called to do, who we are called to be in the God we serve. It will ruffle some feathers. That word clipsis, that tribulation, that crushing pressure word, I think it's also interesting to note that it's a technical word in the New Testament. It doesn't mean the pressure, even though it is pressure of the frustrations of everyday life. It's a technical term that is normally means <coughs> the struggle we have with the connection between the kingdom of God and our birth and life. It's the pressure that happens when those two collide. The sinful world and the godly world, when they collide, that pressure of the two coming together because they don't meet perfectly, do they? The kingdom of God looks quite different from our broken world. Sure, it may be a dim image, the broken world may be, but it doesn't align. And this is that pressure when they come together. When, when you have bright light, when you have a bright light in the darkness, the darkness has two choices. It can retreat or it can seek to overcome the light. When it seeks to overcome the light, that's that pressure, that flips the suit. There's pressure experienced here in Smyrna is this kingdom of God and this broken world coming together. And notice how the Apostle John actually begins Revelation. In chapter 1, he says this, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, the same word, eclipsis, the partaker in the eclipsis in the kingdom and the perseverance that is in Jesus. John links three words, tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance for a reason. We are to have perseverance, a kingdom perspective, when we hit eclipses, when we hit the crushing pressure, when we hit tribulation. John is really telling us of this connection that our suffering can have with the rest of life, that it's not completely disconnected all the time. Our suffering can be connected with the kingdom of God and with the perseverance we must have as believers. And so our first note is this. Followers of Jesus. Will come up on the screen? There it is. Followers of Jesus 
will experience pressure. And this is not the everyday pressure. We will experience pressure of all different kinds. I want us to understand this because I think too often we lead people to believe, or perhaps we believe at one point, to follow Jesus is going to be easy. It's not easy. It's hard. It's challenging. Is it the best choice you can make? I, yes. I believe it's the best choice you're going to make. But it doesn't mean all your troubles are going to go away. In fact, you may be creating for yourself even more troubles because you are proclaiming Jesus to a world who hates Jesus. There are a lot of people who love Jesus, but there are people who hate Jesus and what he stands for. You will experience pressure by being a follower of Jesus. Let's consider Smyrna for a moment. A little bit of a history lesson. Smyrna was probably the loveliest of the seven cities. It was called the crown of Asia, the flower of Asia. It was the birthplace of many great writers, among whom would have been Homer. Anybody remember Homer? And I'm not talking about Homer Simpson. <laughs> Homer, the great uh, poet and writer of the past. <coughs> and then you also have later uh, Bishop Polycarp, one of Christian's uh, most faithful martyrs. And you know what's interesting? Out of all the cities, Smyrna is the only one that still exists today. Exists by a different name. Exists by the name of Izmir. And it's the third largest city in Turkey. Modern day Turkey. <clears throat> but it's the only city out of the seven that still exists. But Smyrna at the time, it was, it was the center of emperor worship. If you remember, if you were here last week, you remember that the part of what was going on is the emperor dimension of the time. Uh, he was he was a very incredibly insecure man, and so he required all citizens of Rome to worship him on a daily basis throughout the week, as if he were a god. Pay tribute to him, all of that stuff, and that's how John landed on the island of Patmos because he refused to. So he put slave labor on Patmos, and that's where uh, he suffered himself and experienced his revelation. But it's the, it, was the, it was the center of emperor worship. Smyrna was sold out for Rome. In fact, they had several temples for different gods, for different emperors throughout history that they won the right to have there because they were the most Romanist of all, if you want to put it there. They were sold out for Rome. And so the Christians there, even though this was an incredibly rich city, were poor. Why? Because they were different. They stood for something different. They didn't worship the emperor, so what happened? Well, they were boycotted. They were ostracized. They were beaten and abused. They were thrown in jail just because they believed something different. And you know, it was, it was not just the political pressure that they were experiencing from like, political leaders and the, the citizens of Rome, but even their Jewish brothers and sisters bought into it because they didn't believe the same thing. They're like, you guys are crazy. You have abandoned the faith. And so they, they had pressure from two sides. They had their Jewish brothers and sisters putting this immense pressure. So it's like between the two of them, they were just being crushed 
That was the suffering. So here they are in the midst of the richest city, but yet they are poor. No one would do business with them. No one would care for them. They are poor. But why would Jesus say that they are rich? They are poor in earthly things. They are rich in faith. Remember, we're talking about the church that did everything right. They were rich in faith. But there's also another component that Jesus brings up, isn't it? It's an invisible component that we don't often like to talk about or consider. Let's go back to verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Okay. If you're reading this, doesn't that kind of throw you off a little bit? You're thinking, okay, you're talking about this pressure stuff, and then when did the devil enter the equation? I mean, it just kind of comes out of nowhere. Then the devil is going to throw you into prison. How did he get there? Well, the answer is, he's always been there. Evil has always been present. It's this invisible force. Remember when we're talking about Revelation, we're talking about that the world is not as it seems. What God is really doing for John here is he's pulling back the veil and letting him see things in light of what's going on in this invisible world, not just the future that's yet to come. Things are not as they seem right here and now. Us sitting in this room, things are not as they seem. They're things that are beyond our comprehension. There's a spiritual realm. There's a spiritual world going on. There is evil, and it has a name. Even if we choose not to proclaim it or speak it or utter it or discuss it, doesn't make it go away. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. Richard Halverson, who, is, who was at one time the chaplain to the United States Senate, once said this on the floor of the Senate. No adequate understanding of history can be had without taking into account the fact that behind and around and through history, a personal, diabolical, satanic, spiritual force is bent on destroying all good in this awful Jesus Christ. No matter how much you deny that evil is present. And really what Dr. Halverson was restating is what Paul had already stated to the Ephesians. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of the wickedness in the heavenly places. It's not a battle of flesh and blood. Battle against evil. So the pressure coming down on Smyrna is even more complicated than we originally thought. The pressure just isn't the threatened political leaders and political powers and the hostile religious, their Jewish brothers and sisters. Really, it's a threefold pressure because you have to add in the spiritual forces that are manipulating both of those. And working against the advancement of the church. Because does Satan want the church to advance, to succeed? No. And so they're under this incredible amount of pressure. But I ask this question. Who is the target of this eclipsis, of this incredible crushing pressure? Is it really the church in Smyrna? Is the target really you and me? 
heart is Jesus. These spiritual forces are at work, not just to crush you and you, because otherwise, why would the why would the evil forces leave us alone when we're not a threat? Have you ever seen how the evil powers aren't a threat if you aren't doing anything to threaten? You aren't living that out of life. Spirits are glad to let you go off into the winds, do your own thing. But as soon as you start doing something to advance the kingdom of God, you experience pressure. From this goes this. A force going, oh, 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 wait, wait, wait. That to me says it's not about us, it's about Jesus. But can evil put pressure on Jesus? No. Remember, this is the guy who's the first and the last who is dead and is now alive. He's conquered all of it. And so if evil can't attack Jesus, what is evil going to attack? Everything that Jesus loves, the church, his people, his children, all of us, evil will attack. Jesus is the real target. And so we see in verse 10, we are tested. We are tested. The word Jesus uses means to prove, but it also means to improve. To prove and to improve. See, Jesus' enemy was doing his best to tempt the disciples to lose their faith, but Jesus takes that temptation and uses it to prove and improve their faith. Have you ever been in a situation of suffering where you actually emerged stronger on the other end? Have you ever seen a horrible situation used to bring about good? Have you ever seen beauty come out of ashes? Happens all the time. Now we can talk about did God calls that suffering, did God calls that trial. In some cases, yes. In some cases, I'm going, I don't know that I can say God calls that. Did God allow beauty to come out of those ashes? But this is a God who is in all control. And so nothing happens that is outside of God's control. So yes, bad things happen that God can stop, but God chooses not to stop them and do other things instead. Because remember, God has, Jesus has, the eternal perspective, the first and the last in mind. So he knows how it's all going to play out instead of us who are in the midst of our suffering and can't see anything beyond our suffering right here and now. He's the first one. So we will be tested. But I think it's important to note that we see right there, and for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Why is that important, the 10 days? Well, first of all, I mean, numbers play a big part in Revelation, as they do throughout all Scripture, but especially in Revelation. 10 is just kind of a, a, a number of completion. It was an even number. It's a good number. So 10 doesn't necessarily mean 10 days. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But what we do pull from this is that this is a season. If it says it's going to be allowed to happen for 10 days, Jesus is still in control. Jesus is allowing it to happen, but only for a season. Nothing happens without his permission. But he will use this for good. But then we move on to the promises. We can hold tight. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is 
not a little paper mache crown that we may make the children's church. This is not a crown that any ruler in our world has ever worn. Queen Elizabeth has never worn this kind of crown. This is the crown of life. This is eternity. This is heaven stuff. This is not earthly. This is the crown of life. This is eternal life. This is the greatest gift that could ever be given. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death. The first death we all will face. What do you think that death is? Our natural death. You cannot escape earthly death. You may be able to sidestep it, but even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, died again. He did face the first death. We all will face the first death, but there's a second death that's far worse than the first death. The second death is not just, uh, okay, I die here on earth and then I'm going into eternity. This second death is eternal separation from God. Some people say that it's going to be fire and brimstone and hell and all that stuff. Maybe it will be, but you know what? The thing that scares me is eternal separation from God. The ultimate love, the ultimate caring, the ultimate creator, and being so far away that you never experience God ever again. Can you imagine anything scarier than that? Eternal separation. But Jesus says, you know what, look, the first death's going to happen. But you persevere with me. You stick with me. You don't face the second death. You don't have to worry about it. You get to come with me. It's the complete opposite of eternal separation. It's eternal intimacy with our Creator. You would never have to wonder, Jesus, where are you, like you do here in this life. After this first death, we get to experience, as followers of Jesus, eternal intimacy with God. This is the promise we have. So the question I have is, did the disciples in Smyrna overcome their fear and keep their faith? The answer, in, at least in a historical perspective, is yes. So far they have. It's the only church that still exists. <coughs> in fact, Izmir, as I mentioned, in modern-day Turkey, is the center of Eastern Orthodox worship. And education as well. And seldom during the last 19 centuries has the pressure lifted for these disciples. It's still a tough place, but yet, isn't it interesting where the most pressure exists on the church, the church thrives. And the church there is thriving. And so as we close, we're left with the question, will you, will I, stand the test as it gets tough? You think you know suffering? It gets even worse. It gets even harder. Do you stand against it? 
Will you stand with me? Will we stand together? Will we stand as a church when the pressure mounts more and more? Will we stand the test? Will we still hold close to Jesus? Will we not lose our first love as soon as the pressure hits? It's so easy to do. Because I think it's interesting and fair to conclude that there is a way out of this pressure. There's a way out. Just don't get serious about loving Jesus. Don't get serious about loving Jesus. And you know what? And just go through the flow of the culture and settle into a comfortable, run-of-the-mill, watered-down kind of discipleship Christian life. Let's call it Christian life. And the pressure will go away. But you know what? When the pressure goes away, the passion goes away. And the apathy sets in. But you won't have the pressure. Will you stand with me when the pressure mounts? Does Jesus mean more than anything else? When you suffer, brothers and sisters, will you cling to Jesus? That's my prayer. Will you suffer?